Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times. A look at the book of Revelation that we are filming during the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. And our main working thesis throughout the book has been that Revelation is not intended to scare us about the end times. It's not intended to scare us about Christ's return. But in fact, it's meant to comfort us with Christ's return. It is meant to comfort the people of God as they live throughout the end times, throughout the church age, throughout the time period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Amid all of the uncertainty of human life, amid all the the wars and persecution and famines and plagues, and all of the, the suffering that occurs as we await Christ's return, we are comforted with the fact that Christ is Lord and that Christ is coming back. And today we come to Revelation chapter 12, a passage that I am calling the truest fairy tale ever told. One of my favorite writers is G.K. Chesterton, a British writer from the early 20th century. And one of my favorite themes in Chesterton's work is the importance of fairy tales in shaping the Christian imagination. And in his book, Tremendous Trifles, Chesterton says, fairy tales are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Exactly what the fairy tale does is this. It accustoms him for a series of clear pictures to the idea that these limitless terrors had a limit. That these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God that there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. And I want to submit, even before we read Revelation 12, that this is really what Revelation 12 is doing. That we approach the book of Revelation uh, so frequently thinking it's a code to be decoded, that we need to figure out what all the symbols are so we can predict the, t- the people, places, and times of the the, the second coming of Christ. When really what Revelation 12 is doing is retelling redemption history, retelling the history of God and his people uh, in, a very, uh, in, a, in a genre very much like a fairy tale, giving it to us from a different perspective so that it can comfort us as we live through the period of time that we're living in. Grant Osborne says something similar in talking about what exactly this chapter is intending to communicate. And he says, The story told here can rightly be called an international myth. Stories exactly like this are found in virtually every ancient religion, such as Egyptian, the mother goddess Isis pursued by the red dragon Set. Ugaritic, the storm god Baal, defeating the seven-headed serpent Leviathan. Mesopotamian Marduk, the god of light, kills the seven-headed dragon Tiamat. 
and Greco-Roman, the goddess Leto, pregnant with Apollo, pursued by the dragon Python and rescued by Poseidon. It is not unusual for a biblical story to follow such contours. In the Old Testament, Yahweh assumed titles like Rider on the Clouds, a title of the Canaanite god Baal, and many of the shrines like Bethel were previously pagan and were baptized to become Yahweh shrines. One could say that the Bible demythologizes pagan myths by historicizing them, that is, by showing that they have now actually happened in history. So the story here is a redemptive analogy with an evangelistic purpose to show that in Christ, all the pagan hopes have been realized. And so that is what we will read as we read Revelation chapter 12. And then we will look at four ways that this retelling of redemption history, this retelling of God's action in human history provides us with certain comfort in uncertain times. And so if you have your Bibles open, follow along as I read Revelation chapter 12 through verse 17. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman 
The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. One of the things that sometimes confuses us in reading Revelation chapter 12 is that it does not read straight through in one narrative. What you have is a summary of everything that's happening in verses 1 through 6. The uh, entire redemption story uh, involving uh, this battle between the woman and the dragon and God is summarized in verses 1 through 6. And then the two various aspects of the struggle are broken out in the remaining parts of the chapter. And so verse 4 talks about the dragon sweeping away a third of the stars in heaven and hurling them to the earth. This is most likely a reference to uh, the devil leading a third of the angels astray. Stars in Revelation refer to angels. And so uh, verse 4 deals with the, the warfare between uh, God and the devil in the heavenly places. And that is then, uh, t- you see the telescope view in on that battle in verses 7 through 12. And then verse 6 talks about the battle then coming to earth. And that battle, you get the telescope view in verses 13 through 17. And so what you have is really one story told really as we've seen throughout Revelation in three different ways. Uh, This is one of the tactics that John is using. He tells the same story in a a multitude of ways. And so here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 are the summary. Verses 7 through 12 talk about the, the battle in heaven. And verses 13 through 17 talk about the battle here on earth. Uh, But we're not going to look with tremendous detail on any of the the symbolism or really anything else that's going on. What we want to draw out is what we've been drawing out every step along the way. What is the comfort that we're supposed to take? If this is supposed to give us certain comfort in uncertain times, if this book is written to believers primarily and not unbelievers, what is it that we're supposed to see? And so uh, as we live in this church age, as we live very much in the midst of the battle that is described in verses 13 through 17, uh, the enemy warring against the people of God. What is the comfort that we're supposed to take? And so uh, I want to bring out four points as we suffer in this life because of the, the warfare that the enemy is waging against God and his people. Uh, four, four things that we can take away from and find comfort in. And the first is that God is aware of your suffering. God is aware of your suffering. One of the the things that we see in this chapter is that what we experience in our lives, what we are experiencing during the COVID-19 crisis, what we are experiencing uh, as Christians in the 21st century, as American Christians in the 21st century, uh, is really part of a story that's much bigger than us. And as I've said several times, chapter 12 is the the whole of redemptive history 
condensed into a very small chapter. And so what you see, one of the symbols that uh, seems pretty clear is that the woman is the faithful people of God, but it's the entirety of the faithful people of God. And so at the beginning of the chapter, it's really faithful Israel. And you see uh, the woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. The symbolism here is most likely taken from Joseph's dreams. If you remember, Joseph had a dream uh, where his father and mother were the sun and the moon and his brother were the stars and they were all bowing down to him. And so the sun would be Jacob and the moon would be Rachel and then the 12 stars would be Joseph and his brothers uh, symbolizing Israel. And the, the Israel who then uh, under persecution in labor pains eventually birthed the Messiah. But then by the end of the chapter, uh, the woman is still God's faithful people, but now the son has been born. And so now it is not just the faithful remnant of ethnic Israel, but now even the Gentiles who have believed in Jesus, who have believed in the son who was born are now grafted in. And so uh, by the end uh, the woman and her offspring refer to those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. And so the woman and her offspring refer to the faithful people of God. And so this story of suffering, this story of this dragon waging war on God's faithful people is one that started well before any of us are born. And if Jesus does tarry in returning, it will continue well after any of us die. We are part of something that is much bigger than us. And so God is aware of our suffering. It doesn't take him by surprise. This is what life is like here on earth as we remain faithful to God, is that we are suffering at the hands of God's enemy. We are suffering at the hands of the accuser of the brethren. We are suffering at the hands of the one who persecutes God's people and who persecuted and eventually killed God's Messiah. And so God is aware of your suffering. He is aware of what is happening around the world to Christians who are being persecuted. He is aware of what is happening here in this country of Christians who are suffering either from the pandemic or the economic effects or, or social injustice or, or any other circumstance that is the result of sin, that is the result of the devil's schemes uh, against God and his creation. And so God is aware of your suffering. He sees you where you're at. And he knows your role in this grand story that is much bigger than us. But of course, God being aware of our suffering is uh, only comforting to a point. There has to be more than just him being aware of our suffering. And so the second thing that we see is that God is sovereign in your suffering. God is sovereign in your suffering. This is especially important for us to understand as American Christians uh, in 2020. This is, a, of course, is an election year. And as I've mentioned the past couple weeks, we are filming uh, this particular episode um, 
now in early October of 2020, uh, four or five weeks from the presidential election. And what you see here in Revelation 12 is that the governments of this world are not on God's side. When it talks about the dragon having seven heads and ten horns, symbolism that comes from the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel. Uh, it is this idea that the dragon is accompanied by the kings and kingdoms of this world. And that, that is why even the, the kings and kingdoms of this world join him, even as we saw um, with Egypt in the Old Testament with uh, persecuting uh, Israel or Babylon or eventually Herod wiping out all of the infant boys of uh, trying to, to crush the Messiah before he could rise up. That the kingdoms of this world side with the dragon against God. And so we need to be careful about our alliances living during these end times in this church age between Christ's two comings. Because either Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord. There is no in-between, and they cannot both be Lord. And so we do need uh, to be careful of that because the, the governments of this world, the, the worldly systems, the kings and kingdoms of this world are allied with the dragon against the woman and her son. And yet, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we need not fear that it, we are standing against not only the devil, but also the world system. Because we are told that God is sovereign even over those who appear to be sovereign. The dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and on its head were seven crowns, all symbols of authority and power. And yet, when we get down to verse 7, and we get that telescoped view of the warfare going on in heaven, notice who's fighting the dragon and his angels, who's fighting the dragon and this world system. It's not actually God. War breaks out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels could not stand against Michael and his angels. And this is something that should provide comfort for us. Because unlike some dualistic religions, good and evil are not equal in Christianity. They are not equal in biblical faith. God and Satan are not pitted against each other with equal powers. Satan's equivalent is not God. It's the angels. And even he cannot, he cannot even stand against Michael and the angels. And so everything that is occurring, whether in heaven or on earth, God remains sovereign over. Because God's angels are victorious over the dragon and his army. Verse 8 says that the dragon could not prevail against Michael and his angels. And so God is not only aware of our suffering. God is sovereign in our suffering. He is the one who remains in control. He is the one who has ultimate authority, especially in the life of the believer, much more so 
than any of the world systems which are actually aligned, against, aligned with the dragon against the woman and her offspring. And so God is aware of your suffering. God is sovereign in your suffering. Thirdly, God is victorious over your suffering. God is victorious over your suffering. Of course, the victory of Michael and his angels over the dragon and his angels in heaven is not the dragon's ultimate defeat. It's not God's ultimate victory. But this passage does speak to his ultimate victory over the dragon and over all of his angels. We see a glimpse of that in verse 5 where it says, She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Uh, and it, it kind of skips over uh, what we normally think of as the focal point, what we normally think of as, as God's ultimate victory at the cross, um, and skips right from his birth, right to his ascension and rule. Uh, but we do eventually get the cross, uh, because the cross, of course, is throughout the book of Revelation. That is the primary feature. Revelation speaks much more about the cross than it does about the second coming. And we see that here in this passage. Uh, we see that in, in verses uh, 10 uh, to 12, where it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come, because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. And what you see here in uh, verse 10 is that salvation and power and kingdom and authority have all come, uh, that the people of God have conquered by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of his testimony. And then that the devil is cast down and he is raging with great fury because he knows his time is short. Uh, these verses tell us that the devil does not continue to fight because he thinks he can somehow win, uh, but rather he is thrashing around in his death throes, that on his way out he is trying to cause as much destruction and damage to God and his creation as possible. He knows he has been defeated. He knows his time is short. Now, he perhaps thought that at the cross he could stamp out God's purposes by killing his son, by killing the Messiah. But since the cross, since the resurrection, he knows now that he has been defeated. Because his primary weapon, death, has been defeated in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this continues to be our only hope of victory over the enemy and his schemes. The victory of the cross continues to be the victory over the enemy. Osborne says the blood of Christ is the basis of every victory achieved by the people of God. And so 
Uh, this has implications for our personal lives. Our personal victory over sin is by the blood of Jesus Christ or not at all. We might be able to control our flesh a little bit with willpower, with white-knuckling it, with trying really hard. Uh, we might be able to push down our urges or channel them into something that's a little more acceptable of a sin. Uh, we might be able to get rid of drinking or smoking uh, and funnel it into eating, which in our culture is totally acceptable. Uh, we might be able to, to funnel it into anger, which is even more socially acceptable. But we cannot gain victory over sin except by the blood of Jesus Christ. But this is also uh, important for us to remember in a, a societal way. Because for the church of Jesus Christ, our only victory, again, comes via the cross. We cannot win spiritual battles by using fleshly weapons. We cannot win spiritual battles by aligning ourselves with the kings and kingdoms of this world who are already aligned with the dragon. We stand in the power of the cross or we do not stand on the side of God. And so the cross is our only hope of victory. And that is what John is saying in verse 11 where it says that they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that defeats Satan and his schemes, and it is by the word of our testimony, our aligning ourselves with him, that we gain victory over this world, its God, and his schemes. F.F. F. Bruce says that their only means of resisting the enemy's attack is patient endurance and faithful confession. This may mean suffering and death, but it was precisely by suffering and death that their leader had conquered. It is to Jesus, not to Caesar, that world dominion belongs. It is Jesus, not Caesar, who is Lord of history. And those who confess him faithfully before Caesar and Caesar's representatives participate in his victory and kingly power. And so if you are watching this on the day that this video will be released, you're about exactly a month away from the presidential election. And based on your social media interactions, based on your interactions with people who are voting differently than you, who believe different things than you, could it be said that you are confessing Jesus faithfully before Caesar and Caesar's representatives? Can it be said that your only hope is the cross of Jesus Christ in his lordship and not Donald Trump's, not Joe Biden's, not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? Could it be said of you that you are being faithful not only to the name of Jesus, but also to the cross of Jesus, to his way of life and death and victory, to his way of conquering this world and its God. Because so much of the vitriol that I see fueling discussions regarding uh, politics and regarding the election 
is because we seem to think that in order to avoid suffering and persecution and death, we need a particular person in power. And so we need to get him and keep him in power by any means necessary to avoid persecution, suffering, and death. But the cross of Jesus Christ tells us that it is through suffering and persecution and death that God conquers the world. And so, in using the tools of the dragon, aligning ourselves with the allies of the dragon to try to avoid the way of the lamb, we are actually doing the very thing we're trying to avoid. And so, brothers and sisters, even in, especially in a season such as this in our country, we must remember that it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we conquer. And that should impact the way that we speak and the way that we act and the way that we vote. It should impact the way that we live as Christians in our culture, bearing witness that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. That the way of Jesus is the way of victory and the way of Caesar is the way of the dragon. And so God is aware of your suffering. He is sovereign in your suffering. He is victorious over your suffering. And finally, God is comforting in your suffering. He is comforting in your suffering. As the d devil is cast out of heaven and the warfare moves from heaven to earth in verse 13, we see the woman fly and she is given a place in the wilderness where she was nourished. Uh, again, much like we see in the Old Testament with Elijah, for example, where he is taken into the wilderness to be nourished, to rest. Uh, but still she is pursued. Uh, still, time after time, the dragon goes after the woman. And yet God provides for the woman and her offspring. The devil may get uh, some token victories here and there, um, but what we see in the New Testament, what we see in Revelation 12, is that even his apparent victories are actually defeats. And again, that's what's so important about the cross of Jesus Christ, is that it tells us that even our suffering, even our death, even the very things that seem to be defeat are actually victories. That God is using the very things that are foolish to this world to shame the wise. The very things that are weak in this world to shame the powerful. What Revelation 12 tells us is that God can and often does do much more with the person who is suffering than he can with our chosen representative in the Oval Office or in the halls of Congress. And it is in the midst of our suffering that God is very much aware of, in the midst of our suffering that God is sovereign in, in the midst of our suffering that he is victorious over, that he is then comforting in, he brings us 
the comfort. He provides for us spiritually that he might sustain us in whatever we are facing at the hands of the enemy. And again, I don't know what that is in your life. It might not feel like spiritual suffering. It might feel like physical suffering. The effects of the pandemic, the economic fallout. It might be persecution. It might be famine. It might be uh, shame from family members. It might be any number of things. But what Revelation 12 teaches us is that even as the dragon tries to cause as much damage to God's creation as he can, that that damage, that suffering and death is the very thing that God is going to use to bring about his plans for his people. And that is why this short little fairy tale, the truest fairy tale ever told, can bring certain comfort in uncertain times. Because it is in the midst of our suffering that God is redeeming his creation. That what we are experiencing is nothing new under the sun, but what the dragon has been doing for centuries upon centuries, trying to bring about his purposes, but ultimately failing because it is through death and through suffering that the cross of Jesus Christ proves its victory over the dragon. Thank you for joining us. We've looked at Revelation chapter 12. Join us next time as we move into chapter 13.